Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, hello, Sharon. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. What's your name? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute now. Oh, well, it's good to be back together again and uh, back in the studio here. And of course, we have a couple of our favorites in house with us. Absolutely, we do. And we're going to be talking about the road to direct reimbursement. From those that made the journey. Oh, yes. I this mean, is a pretty important well, topic, right? Well, if you don't get paid for what you do, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I well, love you're for the our numbers CRNAs guy. to get paid. You know, Absolutely. We, we all love to get paid. So. <laughs> um, obtainment of direct reimbursement was a complicated process for the ANA. It spanned, I think, about seven years under seven different ANA presidents and, and board of directors. Patricia Fleming, Patrick Downed. Downey, Downey, like the softener. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that says Downed here. um, Barbara Adams, of course, our favorite Mr. Dicoulette. Peggy McFadden, Jan Menino, and also Sandy Marie Ouellette. The effort included 77 ANA leaders, presidents, and ANA members of the board, uh, it began in 1983 and ended in 1989. The first four years was spent in legislation, and the last three in regulation or obtaining party and parity and payment. So we're delighted today to have with us Dick. Welcome, Dick. Welcome, Please Sandy. Thank you. I don't think you really need an introduction because I think pretty much everybody knows who you are, but we're happy to have you here. And you guys were part of this movement, right? Correct. correct. Yeah. So let's get a little background here and hear about one of the greatest lobbying achievements, not only for the ANA, but for all of nursing. Okay, I'll start then with that. As we look back in history between 1970 and 1980, healthcare expenditures had increased nationally from $69 billion to $230 billion a year. That's nothing to today's times now, but it. But that was probably the largest jump it had made in such a small time, right? It was such a small time, and a lot of it had to do with the Medicare 
and because uh, reimbursement practices for hospitals and physicians under Medicare were designed to encourage higher costs. As a result, the more the hospitals, the more physicians did, the more they ended up getting paid. Mm. So certainly that was one part of it. And the other part of it also, there was a lot of fraud and abuse of that legislation. Looking at it from our anesthesia viewpoint, 25% of the uh, fraud of abuse litigation involved anesthesiologists. Mm -hmm. That hasn't changed. (laughs) And billing for concurrent cases in 1982 was not limited to a fixed number. Here in many institutions, there were what we used to call stables of anesthetists, where one or two anesthesiologists had 15 to 20 nurse anesthetists, and they were building for the cases as if they were doing them all themselves. And in many situations, in smaller hospitals, the physicians were building for the anesthesia services that the nurse anesthetists were giving. And uh, many a times they were out on the golf course or they were out of town completely, and yet this was all the fraud and abuse that was being done that was increasing significantly the cost of health care. And, you know, that was still going on even whenever I got out of school. They billed and they were in the bed mm-hmm. <laughs> whenever, whenever I was working. So, Sandy, what happened with the federal regulators, HICFA, whenever they tried to fix this reimbursement problem? Well, well Sharon, you know how it goes when the government tries to fix anything. <laughs> you know, it takes a long, long time, and it always costs more, and mm-hmm. it's more ineffective than when we started. But yes, uh, HICFA is the Healthcare Finance Administration. And uh, they wanted to fix some of these problems. So the first thing they did is they introduced ratios for reimbursement. See, the thing was, they wanted, if they were paying the anesthesiologist, they wanted the anesthesiologist to be there. And so, yeah, Yeah. and so they, uh, they did these ratios. Now, in 1982, the ASA supported a ratio of two to one. Oh, my uh, God. One anesthesiologist for two nurse anesthetists. At the same time, CRNAs and other anesthesiologists, especially those in the southeast, mm-hmm. and I will have to say especially some of our friends in Raleigh, mm-hmm. opposed these ratios. But they felt if we had to have one, that it was essential that it be no less than four to one. And the argument used for that was, the larger number of anesthesiologists was more costly. A two-to-one was more costly right. than a four-to-one. And groups with higher CRNA to MD ratios more likely to accept assignment in Medicare payment. Mm-hmm. And they find that no research indicates a difference in outcome based on fixed ratios. It still doesn't. It certainly doesn't. It still doesn't. And, and they found that ratios did not take into consideration the characteristics of the anesthesia workload mm-hmm. or population served and were inappropriate for determining cost-effective personnel resources for a facility. And so it was argued that implementation of a two-to-one ratio would significantly increase cost, where a four-to-one would be more cost-effective. And at the same time, ANA was very much stressing that while a ratio might be appropriate for reimbursement, a ratio should never, and I say that with uh, great strength, be used to imply quality. And that was very important. So in the final, it was decided there would be a four-to-one ratio. So that was a big win for the AANA. So it reflected the reimbursement, but not quality of care. So that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was TEFRA, 
the Tax Equity Fiscal mm -hmm. Responsibility Act of 1983, and I think we've talked about that some. But again, to make sure that they someone was doing something for the money they were getting paid, then TEFRA introduced the seven conditions of payment. And we've talked about those before in terms they had to be there for pre-anesthetic evaluation, prescribe the anesthetic plan, personally participate in induction and emergence and other demanding procedures in the plan, monitor the course of anesthetic administration at frequent intervals, and we all know how that kind of goes, <laughs> and, uh, and remain physically available for immediate diagnosis and treatment, provide needed post-anesthesia care, and refrain from personally performing anesthetics when medically directing. They couldn't be doing a case themselves mm -hmm. in doing this. Now, with TEFRA, what we wanted was parity. We cried, and we complained, and we said, they're making all this money when there's no fixed ratios, no conditions of payment, and they're not in the country. They're on the golf course. Little did we know, and I learned that right. we have to be very, very careful what mm -hmm. we ask for yeah. because we may not like it in <laughs> terms of unintended consequences. So the unintended consequences of TEFRA were very far-reaching, and ASA misconstrued these seven conditions of payment, which HICFA made very clear that's what it was, as standards of practice. And they sold it very effectively to one hospital after another. So hospitals were beginning to feel, unless you had a certain amount of anesthesiologists, you were below the standard of practice. So that was not a good thing. And the thing is, the seven conditions really changed nurse anesthesia practice forever. And to my belief, uh, Dick may disagree. I don't think not if he's smart. And, uh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, he doesn't disagree too much, that's for sure. Uh, but, uh, but I don't think we've recovered to this day to the state of affairs that we had before TEFRA. We may eventually do it when, well, when now, money drives right. the ship. Well, you know, you reviewed a little policy brief that I wrote for school, and now the infographic coming out through the AANA shows that one to six is mm. the most cost-effective way right, right. Um, at Doesn't this particular me. point. Yes. So, well, the most cost-effective. Well, way. is a, is a CRNA okay. independently. You're exactly I'm just right. Saying. But um, if you're within this environment, that what close to eighty percent of nurse anesthetists right. are right. in, right. the, the ratio model. is one yep. to six. Right. And actually, that's exactly what happened in Charlotte. Whenever they got taken over, a big hospital in North Carolina, and over seven hospitals they saved several million dollars just within a few months just by changing mm -hmm. those ratios be nice if that would just trickle on down this well way, yeah. you know what <laughs> maybe eventually i think not only is it going to it's going to have to mm -hmm. i yeah. mean this mm -hmm. healthcare system just can't bear this burden and while dick was talking about how much health care had uh, went to now, health care costs a year in the United States are about $3.2 trillion, or almost 18% wow. of GDP. <laughs> so, well, we all know that's not sustainable. Yeah, and of course, the numbers it, guy knows in that. In this area of medicine, we all know what the most cost-effective and safest care out there is, but if we can't get it all... We're going to try to get some. Yeah. Well, how do you that. eat so an elephant? One bite at a time. There you go. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about PPS and DRGs, prospective payment system, 
and diagnosis-related groups. Okay. And come 1982, 83, the boards, we were discussing a lot as we were moving forth to go forward and, let, and uh, seek direct reimbursement. We had to set our priorities in there. One of the big things that was the difference with us in comparison to the physicians or anybody else is we were under various practice settings. Some of us were hospital employed, others were physician employed, and then you also had the CRNAs who were independent practitioners who actually contracted with the hospitals themselves for money. So the situation coming with both the PPS and the DRGs, they're going to be moving payment away from being for a set service, but bundling it all together under a DRG that it'd be a fixed payment mm-hmm. that would be given to whoever, right. whether it's the hospital. So now we're concerned of the gatekeeper. Who's going to control, who's going to make the decision, what part of that pie goes to each or who or what? Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot to be uh, considering about that time, and the PPS actually really had disadvantages for the CRNAs. One of the biggest disadvantages is, is it'll make the hospitals all of a sudden realize, heck, We'll just get rid of nurse anesthetists, move them all over under the physicians, and let the physicians have it paid under Part B. And as a result, it wouldn't come out of their pocket. In the same situation, they were also looking at that maybe the DRGs, the physician payment, we're not sure where that's going to go. Maybe it'll go under the DRG. Because if you remember, at that time, they were also talking about bringing back in-house those in-house physicians, the radiologists, anesthesiologists, and pathologists who are all were technically hospital-based at the time, they broke off. Now maybe we need to bring them back in, any emergency room physicians, bring the four of them back in and have that part of the DRG. Under so Part A. That under, uh, and right. everything being under Part A. Hospital services. So... Again, you know, it was getting to be, there was many disincentives in that respect. And also looked at it from the uh, anesthesiology point. point. If the Medicare would not reimburse physicians for the CRNAs doing the work, then it was really a disincentive for them to hiring nurse anesthetists that need to be a complete physician service. So basically, even the anesthesiologists were kind of opposed to a lot of this that was going on. So that's where we ended up spending a lot of time finding what would be an advantage, where we would be, and always be remembering that our forces consisted of three various working settings, working for physicians, working for the uh, hospital, or independent practice contracting with the hospital. So we had to keep that all in mind as we were starting to move forth and looking for direct reimbursement. Mm-hmm. And this is what we brought to the legislators when we first started going to the DA, looking for direct reimbursement, that we had to find a system that would not have disincentives for the use of the nurse anesthetist. And then also we ended up saying what we as CRNAs could provide in the, uh, to the service and to the country for the health care. 
Dick, I think you'll agree with me. PPS did more to control or put the control of CRNAs in the hands of ASA than any other incident in nurse anesthesia history. That's correct. We had absolutely no way to be reimbursed, whether you were a hospital employee, a physician employee. The money was gone. Am I correct? It's like you were invisible. That's right. That's right. Because prospectus payment system was really looking at paying a service, not the individuals in the service. Let me ask you something. It almost sounds like history is repeating itself with capitated payment, bundled payment, medical homes. Uh, I mean, we've got a little bit more leverage, obviously, as we get back to our subject. But Well, don't ever, ever not keep you back to the wall because you're absolutely right, Sharon. And that's why we've got to be on top of this as an organization every single minute of every single day and the members cannot be an apathetic disengaged group the only reason that we survived and won direct reimbursement was because we had a, an engaged almost a hundred percent membership yeah and as people say history repeats itself yeah. and it's going to be something different and we better be on top of it well yeah. you know uh-huh. jeremy always says our members don't get engaged until it hits their pocketbook, right. basically. Well, they're worried about it. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. but you know, right now you look at nurse anesthesia as a whole; it's a pretty good gig. People feel pretty good. There's plenty of work out there. There's jobs out there. You're feeling good, but what's going on behind the scenes that's right. right now? And, and that's where people have got to pay attention. That's right, because today can change. In the blink of an eye, just never, like it did ever. for us. PPS and DRGs, it was fine one day, and the next day we were almost extinct. Am I correct, Dick? Absolutely, that is correct. But then again, when we started looking to start moving forth and uh, speaking to the legislators and telling them how these were disincentive for nurse anesthetists, and considering that we were a major part of the anesthesia force. You know what will happen right that we need to turn around and get something creative to be able to take care of it and the only way that we can end up doing that is having parity in payment mm-hmm. that we both be under the same system that we would either all be under a or under b not one of us under a the other one under b right. and we that we as nurse anesthetists had a lot that we could offer to the healthcare system, which would be beneficial. Now, what were the ratios of CRNAs to MDAs during that time? I know it'd be interesting to go back and look because I know in World War One there were twelve CRNAs to one anesthesiologist. I remember reading somewhere, and I don't know where the eighties. It was like four to one. I know we're about parity right now. Yeah. Are you, t- are you talking about how many nurse anesthetists mm-hmm. and how many anesthesiologists? Mm-hmm. In the I, country. I, I haven't seen that, but it, it's probably very close to one-to-one or one-to-two. It was not like one-to-seventeen right. as it was many years ago. Yeah. Because remember, half of the anesthesiologists that are working today were mm-hmm. trained in the 80s. Yes. I mean, they really pumped up those uh, residency programs, and it was a good gig. And um, mm-hmm. and so a lot came out during those times. After all the foreign medical graduates That's since right. we could couldn't feel the numbers you know and it was awful hard to be able to tell exactly what the numbers were because AANA claimed at the time let's say we had Mm 21,000 active practicing nurse anesthetists 
the docs would conclude, uh, the ASA was saying they had uh, 27,000 members. Well, their members included their residents, they included uh-huh. their uh, their retirees, they included their many, and I mean several times I'd look through the books and see the people who had died five <laughs> years ago were still listed right. in their books as that. Yeah. So, you know, it was difficult to say what the situation was at the yeah. time. You know what, you bring up something really good in that regard because whenever I'm looking at some numbers in a lot of different databases in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when you look at those numbers for the number of nurses and the number of docs, once you're a doc, you're always a doc. And they report those numbers, but you have to be careful and look because they are not practicing. But they're always a doctor. Wow. But if you're not a practicing nurse, you're not a nurse anymore, and they don't count your numbers. It's really, you have to be careful. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was the plan for economic survival of the CRNA? I mean, we've got this data here. We know what's happening. What was the plan? I would say the plan was from that point on that we really needed to go ahead and go for direct reimbursement. And that's the road that we ended up taking. We decided with as the... Uh, as a board of directors in 1983 under Pat Fleming that uh, we were going to seek direct reimbursement. And it was at that time that uh, Peggy McFadden and myself, uh, I was a treasurer, she was a first-year board member from Kentucky, and we were the first to hit the hill and to go and try to see what we could end up doing, the feasibility of getting direct reimbursement. We ended up meeting with a lot of congressmen, a lot of senators, and uh, we did this for a good long time, bringing uh, our cases to them and uh, telling them what the situation was, why we were needing direct reimbursement, and also talking to them, telling them what the disincentives that were set up by the PPS, the DRGs, and all of that. And as we went on, we decided we had some very good negotiating points that we wanted to provide. And the first we said was that direct reimbursement for CRNAs would be budget neutral without expansion of services. The second, CRNAs would take assignment. Many of the anesthesiologists weren't taking assignment with Medicare. And as a result, Medicare recipients would end up having to pay out-of-pocket significant amount of money that we would indeed tear it around and take uh, accept assignment and there's another part too is the RNAs were willing to turn around and s- assign billing rights to our employers so if we were hospital employees mm-hmm. then the hospital could turn around and bill for our okay. services if we were physician employed the physicians could turn around and employ and to the, our independent practitioners at the time, we had about 10 to 12 percent that they would have a means of turning around rather than billing and trying to make contracts. They could end up billing for their own services as well. So those were the uh, major selling points, and the really big ones that they were really listening to was the accepting of assignment and also that it would be a budget neutral system by purchase giving us direct reimbursement yeah and Dick I think we called before we even got there we had to originally come up with like a three-step plan and you recall that we requested a single exemption of prospective payment system to allow anesthesiologists to charge for services of CRNAs they employed 
and that was granted for three years. You remember? Yes. We had to have that little yep. little plan in, in between. You that's know, when we first went to the hill looking right. for the center, and then that's to, right. to fix what was happening with the DRGs that's and the right. PPSs. Correct. That's you are right. right. That's and then, uh-oh, you better say that again, Dick. You were doing both. Yeah. <laughs> you are right. No, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then, then we sought an amendment to uh, PPS legislation to provide pass-through mm-hmm for reasonable costs to hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was enacted also for three years. But the big goal, as you mentioned, was we wanted the big goal. We wanted uh, direct reimbursement. And as I recall, it created some conflict. Uh-oh. Did it not? Here yeah. we go again. What did the ASA do? Well, the ASA reacted by uh, following the in- introduction of that direct reimbursement. The ASA House of Delegates approved several things. One is they passed a resolution against CRNAs or SRNAs administering regional anesthesia. Ah. Remember, we've yes. been doing that. Yes. Some have been taught to do it, but all of a sudden can't do it anymore. That makes sense. I come, I started school in 90. That's Does right. that still happen in some and places yes. today? Yes. yes. I mean, yeah. And they also prohibited the placement of arterial lines by CRNAs and SRNAs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been putting A-lines a in, you know, forever, and now you couldn't do it anymore. And then they passed a resolution precluding members of the ASA ANA Liaison Committee from meeting with ANA members until ANA accepted the Unilateral Developed Act Statement. And that's the Anesthesia Care Team Statement, uh, which basically said we're a stopgap measure until such time that every anesthetic will be given by a physician. And, of course, that was totally unacceptable. And um, so no meetings were ever held. You know, we just kept wow. doing our thing, and they kept fighting our thing. And So this is um, where it started. Where the it was just it was just about here. You know, the students asked me last week. You know, we want the history of the act model, yes. the act concept, the act statement, and I'm going to be meeting with them again uh, the first of February, and I'm going to go over that. But that'll be another podcast, I think, yes, yeah. I think because so. a, a lot of people don't know where it began. But Dick was certainly right. The major selling points was uh, assignment and budget neutrality, and that's what the Hill was hearing. They thought that was wonderful. Yeah. So tell us about the road, the actual road from 83 to 89. And for our listeners, if you'll go back to podcast number 56, we have another series called The Courage to Lead. And that is when Dick really talked in depth about his year of presidency. And a lot of this information is in there and a lot of the, the real good tidbits behind the scenes so go back to number 56 and take a listen if you missed it so dick tell us about the road to direct reimbursement well the road was very interesting we (laughs) actually incorporated two congresses 98 and 99 which is uh, each congress is a two-year point and uh the purpose of our legislation as we went in there was to avoid any inadvertent adverse reimbursement incentives. We wanted to promote competition in the provision of anesthesia services and that we wanted to make sure that both parties would end up being reimbursed from the same pocket, though not necessarily at the same rate. So as we head up down the hill, Peggy and I went from office to office and for Almost the first uh, Congress, we finally got a sponsor. It was Senator Spock Matsunaga from Hawaii who introduced amendment to the Social Security bill. 
that was operational. We were also looking for sponsors in the house as well, and uh, we were getting people who would sign on, but we never really ended up getting somebody to actually introduce the bill until finally in the second Congress, Congressman Barney Frank from Massachusetts introduced the amendment in the Budget Deficit uh, Reduction Act. This started the process, and we were having our annual ANA government relations three-day workshop in D.C., in which many of the CRNAs came in, and this was the biggest plus that we ever had. Our nurse anesthetists all over the country came and stood fast behind getting direct reimbursement. Every congressman, every senator, and every state was being uh, looked at by CRNAs looking for this direct reimbursement. And this went on for, as I said, going on to four years. So middle of the third year, we were having our Washington meeting, and we had a lot of sponsors on the Senate side. We had many on the House side. We had our both bills introduced. But what we really needed was one or more key person, and that would be the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Oh, yeah. And uh, it would be nice to get him on board. And uh, that time was Senator Packwood from Oregon. So at this annual meeting in, in GC, the government relations meeting, two of the CRNAs, uh, Susan Brown and <coughs> Sherry Fassett, both from Oregon, ended up meeting with uh, Senator Packwood. And uh, by noontime, they were back in the office and say, well, he's signing on board. So that was <laughs> the, what we needed. That sealed the deal, so That sealed it. So then basically, I think one of the major turning points came, just happened that that year was the annual meeting, and uh, it was going to be in D.C. I was the president of the meeting going out of office and all. And Deb Hardy, who was one of our consultants that we had, turned around and said, we need to have a reception. And so we ended up having a reception in a Rayburn building that all the a ANA members that were in town were all bust to the Rayburn building and all the congressmen, their aides and everything. We ended up having one heck of a party. Oh, and bet. it was a great reception. And we were packed to the gills in there, and it worked out, I think, very much to our uh, benefit. What was so interesting, and just to back up just a little bit, as start of our second Congress, uh, the year that I was president, we had a lot of our con uh, we had a couple of our consultants that said maybe we should stop direct reimbursement at this point and wait and reintroduce it again in the hundredth Congress. And uh, my board, I was the president at the time, we sat down, deliberated, and decided we're not listening to the consultants now or never. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the best choice that we ever made because here we are with direct reimbursement. And remember, that was at the time there was no D.C. office. It oh, was, yeah. Remember, the D.C. <coughs> office came after that. This was in 1986, and the implementation was in 1989 in D.C. We didn't have an office The there. office didn't open until 91. That's right, Wow. 91. Well, so, was it as a result of part of this? Was that some of the vision going forward? 
Well, Thank Nick was president the second time with the opening of the D.C. office. So, No, I was, uh, no, it was my board, my 1990 mm-hmm. board, that turned around and voted to right, have right, the, dire- right. the bill put in. And, yes. and the reason being because of so much activity going on in Washington, D.C. Right. at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then what happened? Well, then uh, the passage of direct reimbursement actually came forth. The legislation was signed on October 21st. Was there a lot of champagne and balloons and confetti? (laughs) Well, it just happened that Peggy McFadden, who was president at the time, who followed me, was at the Assembly of States in October, and she just walked up to the mics and just turned around and says, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? I've just been informed that President Reagan... Ronald Reagan has signed our Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act over 1986. We have direct reimbursement nice. on the pod wow. B. <laughs> Great, nice. day. Great, Great day. Great day. Great day. And I guess a big shout out to all the members and everybody who took part in this. Yeah, uh, I think uh, certainly I can't emphasize enough the members. It would have never happened with a disengaged, apathetic membership. And we had no way of being reimbursed. So clearly we would not be here today, right. you know, right. had it not happened. And we've talked about the presidents and boards, but a special shout-out to my husband Dick and Peggy McFadden mm-hmm. because for the first four years they were the ones through the legislation that were really pounding the pavement and really right. keeping the plan together. And then Peggy crossed over into the regulation piece because after we got direct reimbursement, I thought, man, this is it. Right. You that know? was just the beginning. Yeah, it was the beginning, <laughs> yes, because uh, then to undergo the regulation was uh, equally as uh, difficult. And the other thing is uh, we really need to talk with our consultants, uh, Dick Verville and Deb Hardy and Jay Constantine. They were excellent. And also our ANA staff and consultants couldn't have happened without John Gard and Ira Gunn and Jane Blumenreich and our Government Relations Committee and staff. And so it was a wonderful day, and it uh, has not been probably equaled right. by, by any group since that time. So when you say Government Relations Committee, you know, now we have a state Government Relations Committee, and then we have our D.C. office. So you didn't have a D.C. office. That's so, right. So how did it work back then? Okay, we still had the Government Relations Committee with uh, our Director of Government Relations. Okay. Uh, and state was also separate. Okay, so, so the it was state two whole separate committees. Committees, there were two separate committees, and the GRC was specifically taking care of the uh, federal and okay. regulatory. Okay, all right. State was under, I can't remember. His name was. Uh, there was. Uh, the I can't believe that you can remember as much as you can remember. <laughs> I mean, I was only president five years ago, and I can't remember like you can, Dick. The other thing to remember is at the time, and you know, we accepted neutrality and assignment. And at that time, seventy percent of the physicians did not accept assignment, so that was a different day too. And it was interesting that the American Hospital Association was not very helpful with our legislation. Hmm. But they were very helpful in terms of helping us work out an equitable fee schedule. <laughs> surprise, surprise, surprise. And so hospital administrators reminded that any payment with CRNA signing over their billing rights was more than what was on the table if ANA had not received reimbursement. 
and payment came solely from the DRGs. Mm-hmm. There was no reimbursement until we got direct reimbursement. Wow. And, and so that was, that was important. And so that, then we start the fee schedule. Okay. All right. So I was about to become president when this passed, mm-hmm. direct reimbursement, and I thought, Phew, boy, missed that bullet. Got this behind I us. got this behind yeah. me. This is going to be a walk in the park. Well, the next three years was just as difficult as the direct reimbursement because now we're working with the regulators, which right. was at the time the Healthcare Finance Administration. And through our little moles in the hole, uh, mm-hmm. we learned that HICFA was considering a fee schedule far below the cost. The fee would need to be increased at least 50% to cover the cost of hospital employed wow. and 40% to cover the cost of uh, physician-employed groups. And so our members came to the plate again. They virtually contacted every senator and congressman urging them to work for an equitable CRNA fee schedule. And some of the points made was Congress did not intend to have HICFA reduce the fee schedule below cost. Direct reimbursement did not mean a reduction below cost. And it wasn't logical to reduce payment to the most cost-effective provider of quality anesthesia care and create incentives to utilize more costly alternatives. That just didn't make sense. And we presented very strong support from the uh, study, the SHARE study, which was the Center for Health Economics Research uh, that had been researched by uh, Drs. Cronwell and Rosenbach and published in Health Affairs in 1988. And the SHARE study, and it was actually stated in there, they recommended a fee schedule be cost-based, and HICFA protects CRNAs from what, and I quote exactly what they said, being placed on the endangered species list. Wow. Because that's where we were, and our people need to remember that. Yeah, so you go from a high... To a low. Yeah. And it's just what you said earlier. Right. We're at a high right now. Right. Pay right. attention. Right. And so the initial fee schedule was uh, implemented on January 1, 1989, with the final fee superseding the initial fee following a 30 day comment period. And there was concerns again, because in that fee schedule, HICFA placed all budget neutrality on the CRNAs, every bit of it. And CRNA's charge could not exceed the charge of the anesthesiologist, but there was no separate charge for CRNA anesthesia-related services, such as insertion of an A-line or a CVP or swan GANs. And we were not to be reimbursed for modifiers, you know, under the relative mm-hmm. value guide, time mm-hmm. units, base units, modifiers. Oh, yeah, but we can't be reimbursed right. for modifiers, although no one was going to be reimbursed a few months after that for modifiers. And surgeons meeting conditions of payment for medical direction of CRNA could no longer be reimbursed. So the key points regarding implementation was uh, in the final days before implementation, ASA sought the support of the AMA to oppose the proposed CRNA fee schedule. And even with that, it was implemented in January, my year as president, which really closed this particular chapter. Um, And I said at that time, although some issues still need to be resolved, (laughs) tongue-in-cheek, the bottom line is that CRNAs now can be paid directly for services under Medicare, 
we are the only nursing group to be accorded that distinction. And you remember prior to that time, if it was an independent contractor, they had to contract with a hospital right. to do the billing form. And then they had to pay a percentage uh, yes. you know, for that. And Jan Menino preceded me, and she also was very, very um, involved in implementation of this fee schedule. And she had some things to say. Our consultant, Dick Verville, and uh, I have a quote here from him, this program reflects the feeling on the hill of tremendous support for CRNAs, and we expect this momentum to continue. CRNAs are now fully recognized, and that's very important. We were recognized <coughs> as a fee-for-service provider under Medicare for our anesthesia services. And then Deborah Hardy, she was vice president and CEO of Capital Associates. And she was the one when our consultants were saying, gotta wait, gotta wait, come back the next year. Mm-hmm. And she was saying no. Deb was the one that yeah. said no, because you're gonna have to educate a whole new Congress right. wow. if you do that. And she but she right. said, but she said recognition and stature that is accorded the independent practicing CRNA. HICFA has built financial incentives into the system for CRNAs who practice without anesthesiologists. What this means is that high-quality care afforded by CRNAs is not only undisputed, it is recognized by the federal government. Very, very big quotes, I think, from these people. Sandy, did you think 31 years later we'd still be dealing with these issues? I mean, Dick, Sandy, did you think this would be where, where we are today? Did you think this is where we would be when you guys were going through this? No, not really. I mean, uh, I think we're in different situations today. I mean, it's not only us, it's everybody. With right. The, uh, right. With the, but at least we're in there in the same group. We still have our services paid for. So if they want to do anything in, reg- uh, in cutting down pays, it'll have to be parity between both groups mm-hmm. and all of that stuff in all groups. <laughs> So I think, you know, we're in a different situation today, and we're in a better situation, I think, be uh, the fact that uh, we're right now on parity right. when it comes to the payment. Well, yeah. we would be totally invisible. Right. Mm-hmm. We would and, be non-existent. And dispensable. <laughs> invisible and dispensable. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure that there was some fallout once the regulations was done, everything – so we were the only ones happy about it, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> we were very, very happy. <laughs> but I'm sure there was some fallout. Well, there was fallouts, and the fallouts actually started from the time that we started looking for direct reimbursement, because even before we even got reimbursement, we were all starting to notice there was increase in medical residencies within anesthesiology groups. During that time, 60 of our nurse anesthesia programs were closed uh, in annual graduates uh, decreased to fewer than uh, 600 annually Mm -hmm. and they were upset with us because we had filed a brief on uh, an amicus uh, curiae to the Supreme Court on the Hyde case so there was lots of these things that really kind of hit back. We were rocking and, and rolling those days, yeah. weren't we? <laughs> and also we were at a disadvantage in situation when you start looking at regulations because physicians dominated JCAHO at mm. the time, and the ASA set the standards. And many of those standards adversely impacted CRNA practice. Mm. What a surprise. So we were being hit in all different areas. And the same thing with uh, insurance. 
insurances, a lot of uh, uh, surges were being threatened with premiums and cancellations if they were utilizing CRNAs without anesthesiologists. Yeah, and I guess this was not only a victory for CRNAs, it was also a victory for nursing as a whole, correct? Correct. Yes, because, you know, if you remember, in 1989, we were the first nursing specialty to be awarded such recognition by the federal government under uh, direct reimbursement. And I think it was stated best by the executive director of ANA then, Dr. Judith Ryan, and she said, the ANA achievement to secure direct reimbursement for CRNAs is a singular, notable contribution to identification and payment of the nurse as a provider of care and nursing services as covered health care benefits. But we were the first to walk through that door. Wow. And we did it because we had to. Right. Yeah. There, there yeah. was no Survival. You didn't want to be first to the door. <laughs> you had to be first to the door. It may not have ever been a question. We may have never done it, but, yeah. you know, it was life or death, Yeah, you know, clearly. But like Dick said, now everybody is going through that door. Mm-hmm. That's right. So. That's right. Any closing thoughts as we conclude here? I think that we often remember that we are living the good times. You mm-hmm. know, It's never been better to be a CRNA, as I said, than right now if we don't mess it up. And it's very important right. that that part be left in if we don't mess it up. That's right. Our internal strength is incredible. And what we dealt with 30 years ago could very well, if not already, be on the table and could unfold just like PPS and DRGs to an unsuspecting group of CRNAs that are living the good life. And you have to be ready, and you have to have leaders, and you have to have people dedicated to read the tea leaves. Where is this going? And I do believe the ANA right now is making a top priority of the Trump executive order Mm -hmm. in terms of removing artificial barriers. That pretty much goes along with the uh, IOM report, the Institution of Medicine in the Future of Nursing, a number of years ago. Yeah, took him a while. Yeah, and but he's doing it, and I think that I'm glad to see that we're at the table and we're following all this because you know that's where it is in terms of our future and just like it just appeared overnight and all of a sudden we were a non-reimbursable entity and it could happen again right so i would say that what we've learned is you've got to be forever vigilant Mm -hmm. engaged not apathetic because if if not, we're going to be selling these big houses, and you know, there's, <laughs> there, could, there could be some. The, the, those cars will go back, and those vacations <laughs> will stop. That's right, yes. Nick. How about you? What What do you think in terms of relevance to today? No, I think you've covered it all. I think that basically is what we need to do: is continue to work together and to continue to look forward to the future. Yeah. Well, we want to we want to thank both of you as always for being here, educating other CRNAs in the community about things that you guys live through, and allow them to get paid today. They should all be appreciative of that and and the sacrifices that you and others before you and others after you have made on their behalf. So, Sharon, 
I think that's a wrap. I think it is. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Jaron Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. But make it positive. Until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, president of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and president and founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.